met this six-year-old child in this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. episode of Subconscious Realms. I'm your host, generally, and for tonight, uh, we are about to venture even deeper into one of the most vast and fascinating realms, period, as we embark on our journey through the Tantric Pantheon. And for part five in this extraordinary series, I can only imagine shit's about to get weird and wild. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my dude, Jim the Ninja. Do you like Jim? Hey, General Lee. How are you oh. doing? Um, yeah, well, I think. You? I know. I'm, I'm actually, I'm like, you know, we prepped a little and I'm raring to go now. Yeah, mate. Um, I really, really appreciate you, um, joining me at such short notice too, mate. Um, I'm honoured. Well, you know, I'm honoured because this is, uh, like, this is, this has been a joint project that you and I have undertaken. Some might say it's a magical operation, but it was intentional, and I think it will turn out really great, and I hope that people get something out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure, mate. I mean, I did not expect this to be so, um, so fucking, um, so vast. It is, it's fucking incredible, mate. Um, I mean, for each of these gods, it could be an episode for each other. That's the, that. I mean, you could easily spend an hour on each goddess. Yes. And you could even spend an hour on each avatar of, of Vishnu that appears, and you could even spend an hour on each um, incarnation of Shiva that appears. But the the like I've said, it is the power is in the Trinity the highest manifestation of the godhead is the goddess like that is how it's it's conceived of like conceptually yeah. she is the supernal power like yes she needs Bhairava, she needs shiva she needs vishnu she needs ganesh she needs skanda like she needs all the players in the game but really she doesn't really need them all at the same time she is full and she is complete by herself she just yeah. doesn't really yeah okay you may yeah i think and that's it's very so fascinating isn't it i think this is the thing i think that people who are practicing occultists for a long time i think that there's always been this idea of like what a goddess is or what like you know like the scarlet whore or whatever you want to call it and that's an amazing yeah. series like the, that series that tor did on the scarlet woman lux and nyp it's 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 fucking amazing okay but the reality is is that tantra presents almost 
uh, different. It's like a different view. It's like a totally different way to understand what is going on. And even before we start, I want to say this. This is something that I've just realized lately. Is that the Zohar, like the Kabbalah that's presented in the Zohar. Okay, that's fine. That's like, that's very similar to Tantra. But the Lurianic Kabbalah that comes like a few hundred years later, they start in Tether because they believe that the Godhead breaks and shatters and falls. And Buddhism does believe that too. I'm not going to say it doesn't. However, we start in Malkuth for a reason. I started us in Malkuth on purpose because we know that that's okay because it's not our job to rectify the Godhead. It's not our job to put it back together because each sphere is complete in and of itself. So the real purpose of Tantra is the mastery of each sphere. And each time you gain mastery of each sphere, you climb closer to God. So it's kind of, I would say that Kabbalah is a bit inverted in its perception of where they start, of where the practitioner, the sorcerer, the upasaka, where they start. We start at the bottom, and that is where we want to be. So I just want to say that. And then today, I thought we would do, change it up a little. I was waiting to do Dumavati oh, yeah. the end, because she is an extremely ferocious, also I would say she's also one of my personal favorites because she really embodies some of the most interesting qualities of all the goddesses. And her story is so important. And in fact, if you really want to get weird, I actually think we might be existing. So each Mahavidya is a representative or an embodiment of time or kind of time. I think we actually might be in the time of Chokma, the time of Dumavati right now. She might be the one holding the reins because time feels very weird right now. Time feels slow and fast. It almost is like not quite right. That's just my, that's just my opinion, but that's, that's kind of where I... I sort of get what you mean. Um, I mean, sometimes I'm like, what even is time? That is, is the question. That is the question. So is time, like some people have said, that the time is the divided into the three spheres. So it's in Banah, is the time of crystallization, as well as the time of death. Then you could say time is Kether, so time is the liberation from all of those things. Obviously, Kether and Daf, the what I call the guru sphere, because that's more how you would understand it in a tantric way. That is the time of liberation. And then Chokma is the time that exists outside of time. So it is kind of the preemptive time, but it doesn't, it's not really time, but it exists outside the other ages. So I like the attribution of Neptune to that sphere because um, what is really interesting about Dumavati is she stands above the ocean, but she, the ground that she stands on is not water. It's actually the ash of the corpse smoke of the end of the world. So uh, that's interesting that way. Yeah. And she's eternally thirsty. 
So she drink, she actually drinks the ocean that Vishnu. And then, so I need to say, I, did, I haven't been good about saying the avatars of Vishnu for every goddess, because honestly, it's important and it's, it does give um, a perspective to understand each one better. And it is, if people want to go back and research them, I highly encourage it. It's very good. Yeah. But the reality, the... Sorry, go ahead, General. Oh, well, no, just go, you mentioned in Ash. Would that be due to some sort of like by sacrifice? Or... So that's really interesting. So when we're talking about Dumavati, she is... So when we talked about corpse sadhana and the sitting on the corpse, yeah, she represents the smoke so the initial smoke of the incense burner the initial smoke that you sanctify all other ritual space with so that she's there initially and then when you cremate the body so this is after you're done your ritual after you're done the sadhana you cremate the body she is the ash that exists when the body is done burning but she also is the spark. Like, you know how ash can have spark in it? Like, you can still have yeah. heat. Yeah. It can still have something. She is also that. But she is also the entire ritual power. So the, all the power you generate in ritual performance, that is her. She embodies the entire power, which is called prayoga. So it is the ritual potential of any sadhana that you undertake. So you can see that she in of herself is extremely important, but she is probably the least popular among them. And I will get into why, because her sadhana is the most challenging. And then uh, to counteract kind of like her difficulty, I thought we would also discuss Bagalamuki, who is the crane face goddess. And why is Bagalamuki important? Bagalamuki stands above Mars. So you can see immediately, easy to assign her to Gibra because she is supernal to Mars. She stands with her club and she's holding the tongue of an Asura. Okay. And the crane, in the, especially in the Nuari depictions from Nepal, is on her crown and it's kind of like you know when a crane is fishing in the water the water is and then the sun kind of hits the water and there's kind of like a mesmerization like the fish gets stunned when the crane strikes in the water it kind of doesn't know what to do so her power is called stumbanam which is the stunning power so that is what one of her her sitas that she grants, one of her accomplishments that she grants in all things is Stambanam. But she also can grant Mohiniye, which is the falling in love with you, fall, making someone fall in love with you. But her, right, because each goddess kind of interprets their sitas in their specific way through their specific sphere. They kind of mediate it in that way. Yeah. So she doesn't cause people to fall in love with you like Kurkula. She causes people to fall in love with you in kind of like adoration. Like it's not real love. It's kind of like uh, 
mind control love, but it, it, I mean, that is something that she grants. I'm not telling people to do that, but I'm just saying that is part of her power. Yeah, and was she, she um, is she, sorry, mate, would she, is she a specific color, you know, like, like blue? Yes. Right? So she is gold. So her armor is considered and always said to be gold. She wears a golden armor, but she also can be orange, like turmeric, like the color of turmeric powder. That is her, that is her herb. If you want to give her like that kind of correspondence, it's always yellow turmeric or orange turmeric, depending on how you interpret turmeric. But oh, it's like a burning orange. And the reason why she's also considered to be gold, turmeric's really considered to be gold in Tantra. It's not really considered to be orange. That's more of a byproduct. Sorry about that. Oh, don't worry about it at all. Don't worry, don't worry. No problem, no problem. I cannot wait to get out of here. I can't fucking wait. Good. No, I'm actually going to. Um, uh, I put those other things out there. No problem. I'll mute it, mate. No problem. What? I'll, I'll just hold the mute button, mate. No problem at all. Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, well, that's a sign. That's a sign. <laughs> Anyways, that was interesting. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, no, don't worry. Don't worry. It's all I'm taking everything like a sign lately. So <laughs> that's what that will be. Because it's all about interpreting the signs that are meant for you and meant for. Each one provides their own way to understand, their own ways to see reality, their own ways to experience reality. So, you know, it's interesting because Bhagalamukhi is the stunning power, like I said. So one way to understand what she is, she's also considered to be the court case goddess. And she by far is the most, the court case goddess. Because she is often invoked to make your enemies not able to speak. So if people are familiar with like court case magic, there's a lot of it is um, oriented towards making your enemies not lie, protecting yourself from lies, also shutting the mouths of enemies. You see that a lot in the the Caribbean. People will like... um, padlock frogs mouth shut or different things 
<laughs> so that so that is but that is what she does and she is the most popular so that might surprise people because she's probably the least known in the west and i just want to say real quick that she does exist in buddhism and she exists as a bardo goddess so people might know this from the a bardo goddess so the bardo is the tibetan world of the dead but just like the material world bardo has multiple layers so but in indian tantra she is not really considered to be a bardo goddess although you can definitely see that there are some i mean she has residue she has like a remnants of that kind of you know she has elements of very it's her path is very left-handed her path is very much about the individual it's very much about the self you could say that her vice because all the mahavijas also bring maras they bring vices forth that the upasaka must then overcome so one of the vices that she brings forth when you undertake her sadhana is selfishness so you can see that there even is a kind of sorry go ahead generally no i say selfishness it's um did not expect that but you know but it's not but it's not but she's a boon giver so you could say she's also at her maximum generosity right because mars is not considered the same qualities as in um western astrology Mars is assigned a lot luckier properties. The common Vedic or the common um, Jyotish name for Mars is Mangala. Mangala simply means like lucky. Can mean Mangalam means lucky one. There are me- and the other name for him is Bomai. And he looks just like Aries. I mean, he rides a, a, a I can't even think. He rides a ram. He holds a mace. And he has four arms and he's depicted as red in color. And he's often depicted or he's often said to be the brother of Agni, who is the god of fire. So you would think that Bhagalamukhi would then be associated with fire. And she is associated with a kind of fire. So that's where the gold comes in. You think have to think of it in alchemical terms when you're talking about Bhagalamukhi because she has so many exterior qualities she's invoked ritually for everything to for exorcism she's like a very popular village goddess a very popular tantric goddess because you don't have to be a hardcore upasaka like you don't have to really be on the tantric path to engage with her she exists very much among the people so you'll see that people when they have court cases or disputes with their neighbor disputes over property or they just don't like someone she becomes a very popular goddess to go to to get people under your feet to kind of make people well one of her qualities because you know as we've always said the mahavijas represent both higher conceptual qualities as well as the lower qualities like the more chipolithic qualities so her higher quality is discourse meaning that it's the arguments that happens between two people 
So her specific power of stumbenum is when gross speech, meaning the sounds that we make, is converted yeah. in our minds and there's a delay. There's a delay between what our heart thinks, what our mind thinks, and the words that come out of our mouth. So she is said to be able to extend that um, moment into a much longer, so what seems, uh, what is a perceptually much longer time. So think of it like in a courtroom, you have two lawyers are arguing it out, okay, for whatever reason. If she is invoked on behalf of one of the other, uh, one of the clients or one of the other lawyers, the lawyer is going to lose his words. He's not going to be able to articulate well. He's not going to have like quick comebacks. He's not going to be able to interject when it's possible. So she does that. That is what she is. She is the the moment between gross speech and thought. So, so oh, sorry, go ahead. Would you say that um, in, in a way that she sort of controls time? So this is really interesting, and that's a great question. She doesn't control time because if people who are looking at the tree, Gavura yeah. is not above the supernal waters. However, when she is depicted, she is depicted on an ocean. So even though she is associated with like the fire of Mars, the purified fire that comes up from Mercury, and that's exactly yeah. how it's described. She takes the arrow of Kurakula, and the arrow causes the fire, and she is like the golden, um, people might know what it is, but it's an alembic, which is where you like make essential oils or make you make in Chinese medicine, they use it to make like a nectar pills and different things like that. But it's like a oven that's made of gold. So even um, I'm thinking of Psalm 12. So I'll just say the line it's purified in a furnace of silver seven times. So that is a good way to understand her. She is the purification of fire as well as the purification of words and so when you have the power of vox city which is that means gross speech so that is her main sita she is the words that she speaks are the reversing words so just for one moment imagine that you're standing on a battlefield and there's an enemy in front of you and they're raising their sword high above you, and they're going to strike you. At the moment where they go to strike you, your positions are reversed. So instead of you being on the defensive, you are the one striking the enemy. So another way to think of it is like a landslide. So an earthquake happens, and it shifts the rock. But the rocks don't necessarily move from the mountain. But maybe three days later, there's kinetic energy. So the rocks will fall down onto the road or fall down yeah. into the valley. So that is what she does. It's kind of like the moment before time, the moment before energy takes its motion. And that's why she is said to be able to kind of rewind time, not all the way, not, it's not like far in the past, but she can rewind time in moments. So she also has that battlefield power. 
Yeah, would that be like like you said, if she sort of um, can control um, a delay in a conversation? Yes, that's that exactly what like it is. The limit delay. To what she can, yeah. Yes. And then also another way I've heard her described in some of the Tantras is as um, because she would be obviously the waters of Mars. So if you think, what is the waters of Mars? Well, a tsunami is very martial in some ways because it's very destructive and it it causes pretty much as much damage as a fire. So. You could say when the initial tsunami waters come in, and if you've ever seen a video, it's just like this. So the waters kind of come in and it's slow and gentle. So that's what she is. But then the waters kind of get sucked out really fast and it carries a lot of things with them. So that's also what she is. And then the waters come up and they kind of come in a big wave. So she is those three moments that happen. So it is delay is her concept so if you want to use a conceptual word delay is the concept she causes the delay in speech the delay in thought the delay in in action so it, enemies cannot take action against you if she is on your team and she is in her main weapon is a club so what does a club do well if it strikes your head it's very concussive, right? And that's also kind of her power. It's very concussive. It's kind of an energy that you don't see, but that can manifest in physical reality. Mm. I understand why um, she's so popular. She's, I mean, I don't, this is one of the goddesses that I have the least experience with, simply because in Buddhism, we have Vajra Varahi, and Vajra Varahi also holds the club and she also has the power of stumbanam however wow. it's actually interesting because in the buddhist conception of uh, bhagalamukhi she can also exist as a mandala goddess meaning that when vajra varahi takes her place as the central deity in the mandala she can be surrounded by four bird-headed goddesses both of which, like Bhaglamukhi and Dumavati, are both part of her entourage. So you could say that Vajra Varahi or Varahi is all the power that can manifest in the physical world, and yeah. that the goddesses are ex the Dumavati and Bhaglamukhi are just aspects of all the power that can manifest in the world. Yeah, so, I mean, it's like, it's like, uh, it's all, it's like the power where she can sort of like paralyze it in a way. That's what, that's exactly, no, that's exactly what it is. She paralyzes her enemies and she does it in several ways. So like I explained with the stunning, with the crane yeah. fishing in the, in the river. So if you've ever seen a crane fishing in the river, the fish come, are stunned. They're not necessarily stabbed through. They're just stunned and they kind of don't know what to do. So that's <laughs> one thing. But the paralyzing thing is actually really interesting because that's said to not come from her club. That is said to come from her eyes, which are golden or yellow. Oh. So her eyes flash like a lightning flash almost. 
or like maybe you could say it's like a flash of the reflection of gold. So when you see like a shiny gold object, it has that sheen. Yeah, so yeah. when you look into her eyes, she kind of blinds you with this reflection of gold. A bit like um, just say you're traveling quite fast and you know going through say woodland and then you come to an opening and the sun's there and it sticks in a bit like that that kind of a flash exactly exactly that's exactly it and she is also associated with the setting sun so that's actually a perfect way to kind of understand her conceptual idea is that okay. she is kind of the flash and she's also the delay and she's also the physical power so that's also what she does is she grants great physical strength to conquer enemies on the battlefield now obviously war is fought a lot differently than it was even 200 years ago but you oh, could yeah. see where she would be extremely important to someone who was of the kistria case so a warrior caste and she would also be very important for people who because there are different kinds of battlefields. You could say politics is one kind of battlefield. So she's very popular among politicians. And that is also... Yeah, very interesting, right? <laughs> so she is one of the most popular for Indian politicians. You will often see... I've She shares a temple, a famous temple, uh, Shakti Peet, actually, with Dumavati. And they... the Her shrine attracts a lot of politicians, movie stars, famous people. Because she can bestow all boons as well. So she can yeah. grant wealth through her sphere. Now, the wealth of Mars is a little different than, say, like Tara in Chesed. It's, like, different than the wealth of Jupiter. And it's different than the wealth of Netzach. And it's different from the wealth of Bhuvaneshwari on Malkuth. But all of those goddesses are very wealth-granting goddesses. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. So <laughs> she can grant all of the things. She can grant all the... She really has access to many powers, but she doesn't necessarily grant them. Like, if she grants you wealth, maybe it will be, like, more of a lottery win. Maybe it will be more, oh, I, like, made a thousand bucks in a scratch ticket. That's more her conceptual idea. It's not, like, lasting wealth. It's, like, uh, quick like like she is like a quick flash yeah and she grants you the boon and then she expects like more veneration so you keep building she's one of those goddesses where it's really important to have like a personal relationship with like some of them you can just go to their sphere do what you need to do get out and you will always have a connection with them but it doesn't mean that you're necessarily like sitting there and treating them as your like Ishta or treating them as like this great external deity. Because so, remember the, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry mate. So, so would, um, would it come at a cost to um, interact with? So like I said, my experiences are more mediated through Vajravarahi and Vajravarahi's specific powers. But I would say that because her power is kind of the motion of the arm bringing down a hammer onto uh, the head of a demon. So 
think of it. If you're striking something, what do you get? You get a bit of pushback. You get a bit of kick. If you yeah, fire a yeah. shotgun, you get a bit of a kick. So I would argue that she does give a little bit of a kickback. Because I think that you you can't you cannot ask for something out of nothing. And that is not even yeah. her power to create something out of nothing. She has to create things that are already in motion. That's very important for her sphere. She just like with her icon, where she's depicted as in the striking motion, ready to strike the demon. She can only put things in motion when they are in motion. So, you know, like, that's why they love her for court cases, because when she, when you're in the middle of the battle of the, that is, she is the goddess who arises in the heat of battle. And she, she also has a ritual, like, this is just the X. Ex- we're just talking like gross, more gross externalities, but she does yeah. have an important ritual function, which is the purification of gross words into liturgical speech, into something that is usable in a puja. Because you have to think in a puja, even if you're very practiced, like the most practiced person, maybe you're like a pujari at a temple and you do a puja every day. There will still be ritual actions that you perform where you might have a delay in your thought process before you recite the mantra or before you recite the ritual liturgy. So she removes the delay. So you can immediately assign the magical or liturgical words to your ritual action. She helps clear the mind. It kind of is like the uh, it's. Well, one of the ways she's described is opening the sluice gate. So opening a gate on, um, it's like an agricultural kind of waterway. Like the ones you have in England, like the same thing. It's opening the sluice. So she lets the water kind of flow through because the water is stopped. Exactly. So it's kind of a rush. And so I think that, like I said, her some of the negative qualities that she can induce in people. And this isn't because she is negative. This is because they present obstacles for the Opasaka to continue on the path. They want to see if you can overcome the the lesser emotions and the, what we call afflictive emotions. They want to see how you deal with it. So, that is where I think that she can cause kickback because obviously people have a, like they heavily rely on her. And the thing about the Mahavijas is that I'm not saying that you can't treat them as mother deities. You can't go to them. If you're in trouble, you definitely can, but don't do it. If you don't have a really strong relationship with them. And she's the kind of goddess to be fickle because she is. She will easily grant her boons. She will easily give you a sita if you want to perform her. Even just doing a mantra recitation, which is how everybody starts. Like me, everybody. Everybody starts with mantra recitation. That is their first practice, and that is the practice you take with you when you die. Like that is your most important thing. Like yes, you can do puja. Yes, you can do 
this left-handed thing, but your mantra recitation is so important. And so she also is that. She's also the ability to recite the mantra perfectly without flaw. And I will say as someone who's been doing mantra recitation for a long time, that it is very rare that you, I will do a full japa, meaning a whole rosary, without any mistake or break in it. Like, there is just an inevitability that sometimes you stumble over words. Can you imagine? So, I, so it's, you just have to push through. That's kind of what she tells you. She teaches you to push through and not let those gross obstacles, the gross obstacles of speech, kind of injure you. And it also yeah. works for her when she manifests in the world, like for an Upasaka that's very close to her. Obviously, I'm, I'm saying I'm not, and that's true. But for someone who is close to her, she can manifest through other people. And she can manifest in a way that will cause you distress because she can represent harsh speech. So she can be she can put a challenge in front of you to see how you're how reactive you are with harsh speech so i do caution people to like not think that oh yes she is the boon giver yes 100 percent, she's the boon giver she can grant you anything but like be very specific about how you approach her if that's what you want to do yeah because yeah. is you know she then you're, it's like, it's like, um, she's kind of a, if you, if you go to that sphere, you're going to have a relationship with her forever. So it's not going to be this easy breezy. Oh, I'm in and out. No, she's not Tara. She Tara is the self-combusting star, just like the cremation fire, just like how we talked about the fire okay. of the corpse eventually goes out. The, the stars in the sky eventually, well, that's what they say, is that they eventually implode. That's what Tara is. Bhagalamukhi does not. She's eternal because she kind of exists in the delay of time. So that's what I mean, is that it's she's kind of around. She'll be around forever. If you start doing that, if you become her Upasaka, that is your practice. And like I've always said, Every goddess is a full practice. It's a hundred percent. The Godhead is a hundred percent. Like they're they They are a path in and of themselves, but just be aware that that is like a consequence of doing her sadhana is that you will have a karmic connection to her for not just this life, but for probably many in the future. It sounds, uh, sounds crazy, mate. You know, like just like cranes mate for life, or at least they say they do. I don't know if that's true, but it's this it's the same idea. And I just want to say one other thing is that her name can mean crane faced, which is the per, that's the translation that I personally prefer. But there is another way to translate her name, which is the horse bridle face. The horse so bridle. If you think of it, it fits her perfectly because she's a stunning goddess. She's also is a controlling goddess. She holds people by their tongues. That's like how she's always iconographically depicted. So what does a bridle do? Well, it inhibits your ability to turn your head and to look other directions as well as speak. So yes. she can keep you a hundred percent focused on her. Yeah. So she's keeping you in control. Really. 
that's really what her power is. It's control, it's mastery, and it is, it's, it's kind of like, um, it's also very quick. Not all the goddesses act quickly. Not all the, like Bhuvaneshwari, she grants great, great wealth in real estate and in the family and in the family home. And she grants like a lot of those things, the ability to make beautiful art and to, yeah. you know, all of that. But it takes a while to activate her mantra. Bhagala Mukhi's mantra activates very quickly. So you, you, think, you know, you think that's, sorry, mate, do you think that's one of the reasons, or one of the other reasons why um, so popular? I've heard, yeah, I think that, yes, because people, you know, people always want the faster solution. People yeah. want the fast solution. And obviously, Mars, even for a Western occultist, Mars is the quick fire. Like, I remember, um, you know, when you're dabbling in other things and, People will light candles to St. Expedite on uh, Tuesday. It's exactly the same. You you want the fast action of Mars, the fire that burns under the feet. It just, it she provides that. It just is that the fire can also burn you as well. So you just have to be aware that it's not, it's not sunshine and rainbows. It's just like a very serious goddess. It's a very serious sadhana. And even though she is the boon giver, she could also take it away. Like if you make a mistake, she's not forgiving. She's fickle. That's ex that's how she's described. Every goddess has a uh, qualities, and usually they're all overlapping. But yeah. they have one quality that's overarching for all of them. Like each one has their distinct qualities that are overarching for them. Her one of her qualities is fickleness. Which you also see, interestingly, in Netzach, in, in the sadhana of Kamala. So when you're there, and like obviously Mars and Venus have a strong relationship. So, but she, where she is the fast-acting waters of Mars, Kamala is much slower in action. Much more, she requires just so much more devotion. So... But they, they are the same like that. They are very similar in that way, is that they both require a lot of intensity on their individual practice. Like, yeah. Bhagalamukhi is not the kind of goddess that you go to as, like, as I said, like, as a casual practitioner. And she's definitely not the goddess you go to when you're stuck on another goddess. Like, last time we said Kurkula can help you with the, the sadhanas of other goddesses, 100% true. I would not rely on, this is just my opinion, just my opinion. Yeah. I would not rely on Bagalamuki to kind of bail you out if you find yourself in trouble doing a sadhana. So I'll just say that. She's not would that, that kind of would, God. Would it, would it make it worse if you, um, make the situation worse if you were to use it? I don't think it would make it worse. It depends. Okay, so like there's a famous story uh, I think it's Bamakapa, who was the saint of Terapith. He was called the Mad Saint of Terapith, okay? So he was a Terra Sadaka, like a Terra practitioner, green Tara. But he didn't really pray to green Tara. He prayed to the Tara that is beneath the armor of Tara. So Tarma, uh, excuse me, on the Murti at Terapith, which is the temple that we talked about when we talked about the Smashan. Yeah. She has three different faces 
but it's not like three different faces like the, you, like people are going to think of like Hecate or one of those like three face goddesses no it is she wears armor so the murti when you look at, at it is a silver armor and she has like blood on her mouth like it's red and her tongue sticking out and but beneath the armor there's a secondary image and then there's a golden armor that exists underneath and behind the golden armor there's actually a image that is said to be so ferocious that if you see it it'll make you crazy like i don't know if that's true but that is what they say what what is the image so obviously i've never seen it before but how it is described and if you remember the last episode we talked about ekajati ekajati's name is ugratara often in buddhism not always but very common okay ugra means horrifying or horrendous so that is the horrendous tara so if you, you also recall, Tara is the goddess that manifests when the third eye of Shakti fell to the earth. So I have heard it described as a seven-eyed goddess, but yeah. because I'm Buddhist, when we look at Still there, mate. Jen? Still here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm still here. Yes. Yeah. It's all right. Mate. Sorry about that. No. It's all right, mate. So when no, so um so I'll just start from where I think I was. So when you see Ekajati, she only has a single eye, a third eye. Because it is said that the guru, the tantric Buddha, Padmasambhava, blinded her of her physical eyes. Because whenever she would look at the world, like gaze at the world, she would become longing. So that's one idea. But then there's also an inner concept where she destroys the world with her eyes. So I have heard, because she, it's not her intention to stay here. She is, she's the, she's a Pleiades goddess. So she's, she's the harbinger of change. She's the, the axis of the wheel of time. So when she gazes at the world, she brings nothing but misfortune, but it's not because she she is inherently a, a goddess of misfortune. It's that she cannot help but perform her cosmic and dharmic function, which is to bring chaos corrosivity the red blood of the sky that is what she does so Bhagalamuki, just to swing it back she can be invoked like i don't think it would make it worse necessarily to invoke Bhagalamuki if you were having a hard time with like tara but i also think that if you don't have a good relationship like if you are not a strong sadaka with Bhagalamuki to begin with then invoking her is going to be a big mistake because I, uh, the whole reason I brought up Tara was because the famous saint of Tara temple once had to quell the, okay. So there's in uh, Bengal, they have a Durga Puja 
that they also call it Kali Puja and they have it traditionally it's held four times a year, but they only really do it twice a year now. But is it some sort of festival? Jim? Yes, it is. It is actually a festival. It's Navaratri, which means the nine nights. The nine so nights. yes, so the well, we have to wait a little bit because I want to do Durga really bad when we do Nessak because she's like a that's where she manifests is like in Venus. She's like, but she Durga by herself. I've also mapped her out and her she takes so Durga takes nine forms which are called the Nav Durgas. Okay, so there's 10, including Maha Durga. So as you can see, just like with the 10 Mahavidyas, there's 10 spaces that can be slotted onto like a tree. Yeah. And plus Shiva, obviously, or plus um, Bhairava, whoever you want. They can also be slotted into the 11th sphere. So you could say that Durga by herself represents an entire practice, like an entire way to get together. You can do it through Durga. No problem. Many people do. She is just a, a goddess who manifests according to our desires. Like, so humanity always requires go the Godhead to manifest in a specific way. She manifests as the mother. She hears our cries. She arises on her tiger. When she descends from heaven, she descends on her lion. So just like with um, Chamunda and Ekajati from the last episode, they have a different bahana, a different vehicle for where they descend, for what yeah. point of creation they descend from. So we won't do Durga this time, but I think it's a really interesting conceptual idea that I would say that Bhagalamukhi, if you got, if you were in deep, like if you did something deep shit and you were in trouble and doing a sadhana for like a yeah. goddess and it became too overwhelming for you, Durga would be the one to go to, to calm it down. Because like I said, she holds all the powers of all the Mahadevs and all the deities in creation. She is the physical manifestation of all of them and all of their powers on the earth. So she can intercede, and she often will. But again, just like with Bhaglamukhi, she requires attention. Might not be the same level of attention, but she does kind of, you know, she needs you to kind of yeah. orient yourself in a right, more right-handed way yeah. to the world. Like, like Bhaglamukhi more left. They're going to expect something in return. Nothing's free. Nothing is ever for free. However, however, now might be a good time. Oh, I was going to, I should finish that story. So at Tarapith Temple, so during the festivals, Tarapith is surrounded by many other older Shakta temples. So many other goddess temples. So what the priests at this one temple did, which is called um, Ragaraja, which is a Chinnamasta temple. Okay. So Chinnamastaka is the most ferocious of all the Mahavijas. I've actually not really said even spoken her name on purpose intentionally not because she scares me in particular but because she is like so ferocious that it's it's honestly like a little worrisome when even people to look at her image because it's just I too think, powerful mate, i think mate you've um we need to um, speak of her maybe on part six now absolutely yeah, mate. But what I was going to say 
is that the saint or the the pujaris, the the priests of the temple, they invoked Chinamasta. So she does get invoked during like the Kali when you're doing Kali puja during the Navaratri. So okay. she does get invoked on a specific night. However, at that temple, the statue they use is only invoked two nights out of the entire year. That is the schedule that they use, like whatever, if it's a lunar schedule or a specific like local calendar, whatever. So the the Pujaris thought, oh, we're going to like invoke this really, we're going to invoke the most extreme of all the goddesses to do this one thing. I don't know what it was. They, they didn't say in the, any of the books I read about it, Yeah. but they invoke her and suddenly what happens? So the temple catches on fire, gets struck by lightning three times. Three of the priests die of heart attacks. And so eventually there's a ton of chaos. So a few days later they go and they run to the saint Bamakapa. And they say, please, like, holy saint, like, come fix this. So he had to go to this temple, perform, I guess he did, like, a Tara Puja, because he obviously was, like, a great Tara Sadaka, and he calmed her down. And what he described it as, he said, if you wake her up, it is like throwing a live cobra, like a, a, like a, co- a cobra, into the cave of a, of a sleeping tiger. And then standing at the entrance and seeing what comes out. So it is extreme. It's just, it's just like so ferocious that it's like, like anyone who knows, like really knows. And I'm not trying to be fear monger. I'm not really like that. And I really have no problem talking about like most things other than my like specific personal practices. But anyone who knows anything really knows to be very careful with her. So that is when you're starting to get higher on the tree. But even like I said, like Netsok is a very important sphere, perhaps the most important sphere for Shaktas. Simply because many. Pardon? It sounds so intriguing. Well, we're going to do Durga next time. So don't worry. We're going to, we're going to rock that. But I think it's good that we can. So. That's what I wanted to say about Chinamasa. But now we're going to do um, Dumavati, at least a little bit of her, because th- she is, like I said, one of my personal, I just think she's just so cool, like just so fascinating. And her story is the most fascinating. And I think so. I guess we should just start at the beginning. So when. Shiva's wife, Sati, dies. Do you remember we told that story? That was a long time ago. But it was in like the first or second episode. We told the story of the Yajna, of Daksha's Yajna. Sati jumps into the ritual fire because of certain things that happen. Okay? So Sati sacrifices herself in front of her father and all the other gods in heaven. When Sati dies, the ash... And the smoke from the ritual fire, when it burns out, yeah. that Dumavati is the one that emerges first. She's the first. Is that why um, she's called the uh, smoke-eating crow or the smoky one? 
So, yes, it's basically why. It's that she is the smoke at the end of time. But she is not the end of time like Kali. She is the grandmother who is outside of time. She exists before creation and after destruction. So if you want to conceptualize it, like every goddess appears with both an avatar of Vishnu and an incarnation of Bhairava. She is the only one when she appears in her sphere, which I say is Chukma, she doesn't need either of them to manifest. She just is. She is the wisdom that she is crazy wisdom. So one of the difficulties with her sadhana is that you have to be outcasted. Like you have to be outcasted from society, at least for a little bit, to undertake her practices. Is it that and intense? She is a widow goddess. So widows in India often in the especially in the olden time would go live in these uh, what they call sati houses so they would shave their heads wear all white that's her color too is white it's white black and gray but really it's white although her clothes are always considered to be dirty although sometimes she can manifest as a beautiful dark skin like tamil girl okay so i like they all have different layers to them but usually she is depicted as a very old woman with like yellow teeth and like crazy hair and she lives in the cremation ground she really lives in the cremation ground like all the goddesses can appear in the cremation ground but it is dumavati who lives in the cremation ground of, of the world yeah would it would she be like um sort of <clears throat> excuse me depicted of like um like an old ugly hack type um Totally. She's, she's, yes, she's so all, all like, yes, that's exactly right. So she's like an ugly hag. She sits atop of a palaquin or like, it's like um, a cart. And instead of it, so in India, when they make these, uh, they're kind of like a parade carts for the gods, like for the statues of the gods, and they parade them into the water. And let their statue dissolve. So they do that like once a year usually. Her cart has no animal that pulls it. That's considered to be very, very inauspicious. It's like a god who doesn't, is not worshipped anymore. That's kind of the conceptual idea. So her cart doesn't really go anywhere. But because she controls smoke, and smoke is in some part air and fire... She can move her palaquin through her own power. So in that way, she is considered to be the sum total of all ritual action. And really, she is the queen of black magic. And I don't just mean black magic as in like you're going to go and do this left-handed thing, this left-handed thing. Like she controls all the ritual power. Like it's all contained within her. But her specialty really is 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 black magic and there's no way to reverse it like once you Mavati, it's it's over there's no nobody can save you yeah is is that why um she depicts it as like the goddess of strife um 
loneliness and unfulfilled desires. So she has seven desires that manifest, just like I said with Bhagalamukhi, she has seven desires that that are seven sins, we'll say, that manifest in front of the sadaka that kind of challenge them in their journey on her sphere. So, like I said, you have to be exiled from society, not of your own choice, but because of circumstances that happen to you. So you could say like people who've gone to prison, those have been, those people have been exiled from society. People who've been, okay, so you could say like in modern times, cancel culture. So if you've been canceled, that's a kind of exile from society. Anything like that. So any kind of like dire poverty, any kind of anything like that, anything that puts you on the margins, then you kind of are able to access her and access like, her like, sphere. Like misfortune, um, you say. 100%. Like, so Indians often conflate her as the goddess of misfortune, who's named Jayesta. But if you look, so one of the secret things, and this is one of my secrets, but I'm going to actually just say it. Um, the way to really look at the goddesses is to look at their, what are called the stotranoms, which are the 108 named, um, they're kind of lists or praises, that's a better way to think of it, kind of psalms that list 108, sometimes 1,008 names of every goddess. So you can really figure out their qualities, like how many names are repeated, how many qualities are kind of similar. Like you could gather them all together and kind of figure out the nature of the goddess. And they also say in the names what, like, so if if other goddesses, like say lesser goddesses, are assigned or syncretized with them, which every, any goddess, it can be any of them, any of the 10, they will be included in those names. So if you look at the 108 names of Kurukula, well, what is one of the first names? The Tripura Sundari. So you can see immediately they have a relationship, like it's one-to-one. So Dumavati actually doesn't have any of those um, misfortune goddesses in her Stotram. None. I've read many of them. They really don't list the goddesses that she is typically associated with, like Alakshmi or, um, like I said, or, or Jayesta or Nirati, who's uh, those, a- all those are. Sorry, go ahead. What what would you say the reasons for that? I think that she isn't a goddess of strife. I think that she causes strife when she appears. Like I've always said, like I said in the last episode, she is the goddess who places challenges before the Opasika. And if you look at one of her rich one of her ritual implements, when she's depicted, she often is holding you'll see she has the varada mudra which is the same one that ganesh makes so it's the just the open palm with the fingers pointed upwards so that's a boon giving gesture meaning it can bestow any boon and remove any obstacle from your way but in her other hand usually her left hand she holds a winnowing basket so what is a winnowing basket it's the it's like a basket that they put the rice husks in to separate the grain from the chafe. So if you think of it, that's what she does to the sadakas. She says, you're not worthy. 
and I'm just going to give you strife. But then she will say you are worthy once you push through the fear. If you have fear, like if you have fear, because her sadhana is extremely ferocious. And it is like entering into the netherworld. And there is nothing there to orient you. There's no buildings. There's everything is burned to ash. You are walking just in a pure sphere of ash and smoke. And there's so much smoke and it stings. That's considered her conceptual idea is stinging smoke. Do you think that, um, is, is that why, um, was it Durga who um, created Yumavati? So Dumavati arises from what we'll say is like Pavarti. Okay. So the, when Shiva's wife, so Sati dies. So his original, Shiva has an original wife. She dies for various reasons. One of the reasons that is interesting that I personally find interesting is that her father had carnal feelings towards her. So in her shame, she jumps into the corpse fire. Okay. That's one way to understand. That's a controversial way, but I, I think it's interesting. So all the goddesses emerge. So the 10 goddesses specifically emerged from that one incident. Durga emerges during a similar, but also different event. So right. What happens often is, is that Brahma, so you remember Brahma, he's the husk of God, the husk, he, but he still has powers to create the universe. The Asuras, who are the Titans or the anti-gods, will pray and do ascetic. Now, remember, this is not, they are not doing left-handed. This is really important. They, the Asuras do not perform left-handed rites when they ask for boons from the other gods. Yeah. So they will perform ascetic practices for like a thousand years or whatever. Like they will give like, you know, those kind of like mythical dates. Brahma always, almost always grants some kind of crazy boon to the Asuras. So they are unkillable or that they can only be killed at X time or like, by a, a goddess, they can't be killed by like a man. It's, yeah. it's always something like that. So basically what happens is he grants this basically like an unkillable boon to this buffalo goddess. So people who are familiar with like Hathor or like some of the Egyptian stuff, which again, I only know because I've listened to incredible other shows about it. Um, she so she has to ride into battle and slay this buffalo demon. So he's like, uh, he has the horns of a buffalo in his back. He's like a centaur kind of, but he's a buffalo, not a horse. Yeah. Anyway, so she has to kill him. That is her Durga. That's when Durga arises. So she arises on the prayers of all the gods and all the Mahadevs. But. Is there, is there, Sorry. Is there uh, demon? Is it Sumba and Nisumba? Yes. So, however, there are many. So, the different asuras. So, uh, like I've said before, every Mahavidya slays a specific asura. 
And it's often how they are named. Like, Dumavati has to slay a specific Asura, and I'm forgetting his name right now, I apologize. She has to eat the smoke that he produces because he gets some kind of crazy boon where that if he um, exudes the smoke, all the gods go to sleep. And that is really important for Dumavati because when she is in her sphere, like when she is the godhead in her sphere, Vishnu is sleeping. Vishnu is Matsya. Vishnu is the half man, half fish. So he exists under the ocean. And when Shiva tried to have a, like he tried to have some kind of discourse with Dumavati, what ends yeah. up happening is she eats him or swallows him. And there are many ways to kind of understand why she does that. One way is that she is so thirsty for knowledge, for ritual and magical knowledge. And he, and you have to think Shiva, he might not be the creator God, because really in this idea of the world, Devi is the creator God. But Shiva holds all the tantric power. He is his, when Shiva is depicted with five heads, which is called Panchamukha Shiva. He yeah. speaks, every, every head speaks in a certain direction. And every head speaks with a gross element. So fire, earth, air, water, and ether. She contains all of that. She does not really fit into the Yadhe Vadhe formula per se. Yeah. She, she contains all of it. So, she t so it's like her saying, I... I own you, Shiva. I have all your power within me. So she swallows him, but he doesn't die. Because she, why? Because she is said to be Lambo Daraya. Why is Lambo Daraya important? It means pot bellied, literally meaning her stomach is like a cast iron pot full of water, full of the waters of the primordial ocean. So Vishnu is swimming or sleeping on the uh, seven. And when he's in that sphere, he has seven Naga kings on his crown. Right. When Jiva is in that sphere, he is inside her stomach. And the only way that she can transmute him is by exuding smoke, just like the demon that she kills. Yeah. So you can see that there's an interrelationship between not just Shiva and Vishnu, but also with the Asura. So that's really important. But then you have to say, because she contains the water of the primordial ocean, so the fresh water, we'll say. Yeah. She contains all the power within herself. So like Tara is also described as Lombo Daraya. So she's also like a pot-bellied goddess. That's one of her main differences with Kali, is the Kali is not pregnant. And but Tara is pregnant with potential. Dumavati is a widow and an old lady, but she is also pregnant with potential. So in one story, she vomits up a black egg. So this is after she egg. swallowed she yes, a black egg. And then the egg hatches, and then it becomes Batuk by Rava who is the Shiva, who's a, it's not really Shiva, but it's Bhairava, who's the little boy riding a black dog. So he appears in her sphere, fully complete, 
as a Batuk Bhairava. So he's not a complete Bhairava and he's not Shiva, but he is complete in that sphere. So when you see her, she she likes children. I she, It's kind of like a connotation with her and people often. So she is one of the Uchista goddesses. I know we haven't done Matangi yet and I was going to do this whole thing about Uchista goddesses, but since we're here, we'll just do her. So Uchista means leftovers. So it's any, it's food that has been previously eaten. It is menstrual pads that have been used. It nice. is, it is um, anything. It's anything like that. But she also loves hashish. So, and alcohol as well, Quran. But don't, it's not like giving alcohol to a saint or to like a local god or something like that. No, it's a ritually, the, there's a ritual performance that happens over the alcohol, excuse me, over the alcohol offering. And it is said to become transmuted. So uh, alcohol is one word and then it becomes Quran, which is the ritually purified alcohol. So that is not considered the same thing. So it's like how she consumes Shiva and just like with that, she consumes the spirits. So the spirit has to be ritually or alchemically trans transmutated into something that she can contain. Right. And one thing I think is really interesting about Dumavati is that she didn't start off like if you want to trace like the origin of her practice, her name, all of that, like, yes, she did start at the fire of Yajna, but she also started as a river goddess. So this is really important. actually. So there's a river goddess on the Konkan coast of India, which is on the East East coast. So it's in Orisha and that kind of area. There is a tribal practice where these people have a goddess named Jumadi. So you see there's even an entomological similarity between Dumavati and Jumadi. So Jumadi is kind of like a syncretic Hindu-Buddhist goddess. Because the area has at various times been both Hindu and Buddhist. Okay? Buddhism is a Yaksha cult. Originally, this is like the old kind of Buddhism, like not practiced anymore. Yakshas are powerful nature spirits who are given the power of divine or enlightened words, enlightened speech. So they have the power to kill other gods, other demons. They're the most powerful in the universe once they accomplish Buddhism. Okay, that's just so how they, it's thought of. They, they can even um, kill um, an, a god with immortality. A hundred percent. Right, okay. That's common in Buddhist literature, that the yakshas will be empowered and deployed by powerful practitioners as sort of, they're not servants, they're like protector deities that will go to war with the practitioner because in one way of understanding, we are the protector deities, like we have a mutually co-creative relationship with them. So if we exist, they exist. But if they, if we consider them not to exist, we don't exist. So it's very, it's kind of non-dual, it's kind of woo, but it's an interesting, still interesting. But so 
Jumadi is a river goddess who swallows the entire river. So it's also important to note that uh, Saraswati and Lakshmi, who are more Vedic, more normative Hindu goddesses, are also river goddesses. Okay? Yeah. Jumadi is interesting because she also appears in Buddhism, not just as the crow-faced Dakini, because that's how Dumavati is depicted in Buddhism. She wears a crow face. She has like a physical crow face. And then four arms, and she holds like different implements. And she was one of the very powerful practices that is said to have originated in Nepal. So, where was I going with this? So, um, she manifests in Buddhism as a river goddess named Kroda Uchuzma. So, it's this big, like, kind of like a blob lady who's very voluptuous and her power is said to suck or to drain um, illness from people, sort of vampiric. Like she eats their tumors. She sucks out their bad blood or, but she usually when you're doing the visualization, because sadhana is not just about the words that you recite. It's about the thoughts you were thinking it is about the visualization that is happening internally. It's about your external ritual action. So all of those things have to coalesce. Just like Dumavati represents all five gross elements, all of your ritual elements have to also coalesce into a singular, you have to kind of hit that moment of sadhana when you're doing it. And everything has to align. So... When you're doing that with her, you imagine the illness as smoke. So she eats the smoke away. Or you can imagine it as water if it's like a blood disease. So she's drinking it away because she's perpetually thirsty for knowledge. And because she cannot in and of herself create things. Right? Like she can, yeah, she she vomits up Shiva and, or Bhatuk Bhairava and he is birthed into the world as a block dog or a little boy riding a block dog. And so he can travel to all the spheres through her. So in that way, you could say that is her way to create the universe. But the time that exists outside of time cannot really birth a new time. It's kind of a time of waiting, a time of silence. I know that often gets ascribed to Bina, but in the tantric conception, she is more aligned with the time of silence. Like that whole idea, that is yeah. really her. Because she also is like when you sometimes when you meet people in the world, they can be manifestations of the Godhead, especially if you're doing like a really intense sadhana. You will meet people who even just for one moment will be embodiments of the goddesses or embodiments of the yoginis who surround the goddess. So if you're a really good sadhaka. I'm not saying I'm a really good sadhaka. I'm not saying that at all. You will notice when that happens. So you will be very, in so she really does that. And so because she's crazy wisdom, she manifests in people who are outcasts from society. So homeless people, crows, um, just, uh, just anything like that. Older women, widows, like you will see there's a pattern that emerges. 
And even there's actually, I wasn't really, I didn't know if I was going to say this, but there is actually a celebrity who I can tell has mastered, maybe it's not the tantric idea of the sphere, but I can tell that they are a master of Chokma. Whatever Mate, that means. Name drop here. Come on. You can't give well, it okay. Hey, I mean, I'm not really going to surprise anyone, but I, it's, it's Roseanne Barr. So in my opinion, this is just my opinion. I personally believe that she has completely mastered that sphere. When I looked at her, when I look at her, when I see the colors she wears, the things she talks about, and she also has been exiled from society in some way because she lost her show, right? Twice. So she, she, and she's not married. In fact, she's, she has been married obviously to like Tom Arnold and like multiple times to different people. Yeah, but she currently is not married. And if you were really a master of that sphere, you could also not be married. So I just thought that was really interesting, and it's also, and it's also crazy wisdom, right? And so it has to be someone who has is a little bit off. It has to be someone who has a little bit of like a erratic personality. So it just my in my this is just my opinion. Is just I when I looked at her, I kind of. That's what I thought. I thought there's someone who's become like the master of Chokma. And obviously I see it through the tantric, tantric idea. I see her yeah. as like embodying Dumabati. So so basically this Dumabati is like um, some sort of witch. Would you say? She, she's a witch. She's yeah. the witch that appears at the end of time. And she's surrounded because most of the goddesses have like yogini entourage. We talked a little bit about them before the 64 yoginis. So Dumavati is one of the 64 yoginis as all the 10 Mahavijas are also, each one is also a, a yogini. But why the 10 are so important is because the 10 are also queens, self, like what we talked about with Kurukula, they are Dakini queens. Yeah. Meaning that the Dakinis that are lower than them, maybe they're not enlightened. Because even in Hindu Tantra, the Mahavijas are greater wisdoms. That's what Mahavijja means, greater wisdom. So they are recognized by the Yoginis as being able to perceive beyond time, to understand karma and dharma in a fundamental way, to be able to touch the strings that... Yeah you know, cause the universe to function and also cause the universe to be destroyed. Because, you know, the difference between Devi and like, say, Shiva or Vishnu, Vishnu always wants to come into the world. He is constantly like sleeping, coming back, sleeping, coming back. And he, whenever he incarnates, and I'm not, I'm not diminishing him in any way. He yeah. has many human flaws. He has a lot of human flaws. And if you're a Tantrika, you're understanding some of his story as being about the flaws that we have as people, the things that we should not embody. So that's different than, say, uh, Vaishnava, someone who follows that particular stream of um, practice. Okay, so they look at Vishnu as like the perfect being. And even when he fucks up, it's like, oh, okay, like he's just doing the best he can. And yes, he is doing the best he can. A hundred percent. I agree. 
He's doing the best he can. But we should not aspire to be like him. Yeah. We should. And then Shiva, he doesn't, he doesn't give a fuck about us. He's like over it. He's like, I'm like, I, he's like lives in, in the Mahasmashana and I put him in like death. Like that makes sense to me. He exists in the graveyard at the end of time. He doesn't care. She brings him into the world. Devi brings him into the world. So the world can like create, destroy, like the whole cycle only. She is the axis upon which it rests. So why does she do that? She does that so she can liberate herself. And so she can liberate us. She does not really do it. For like her, her ideas of the, of herself and of the world are not really worldly, but she does get distracted and she can become very fixated on things that she finds pleasurable. But again, it is all about us. Do we put those obstacles in our own way? Do we put those obstacles before her? That's why I always emphasize, don't go to them with low desire, go with high desire. Yeah. Because if you go with higher desires, you are, you are, it's much more powerful. It really is. It's much more powerful. They will, that is aligning with their true nature, with the true core of the sphere. Like you want to be a master of the sphere, like Roseanne, you have to not have your worldly desires. Really? I'm serious. Especially for Jumavati, because she is a widow. She has given up her all worldly possessions. She yes. owns nothing. She cannot really give you anything at face value. And I'm not going to say there's a specific way to ask her for things, but I'm not going to explain it because it's just too ferocious. However, I will say that there's a very specific way to align your desire with her desire. And it's not in a way that anyone will hear this and understand. It's not like I didn't say anything about it. But I will just say, but if you ask in the wrong way, we'll really regret it. Can you imagine, mate? Check your dude's phone, mate. Check the, the feed. I'll just send you a message. Oh, no problems. Anyways, let's call it now. I think this was a great discussion. Mate. Really long. I loved mate. it. I can't thank you enough. Uh, so short notice. And I was fucking killer that, mate. Loved it. And then. Can't wait for part six. Right? Yeah, I know. I know. Well, we gotta, you know, Kali has to have her own. I can probably, yeah. you know, I can definitely do like Tippereth and like Natsok probably together. Maybe Natsok might need her own. Um, but yeah, Kali definitely needs her own because yeah. we're gonna rock it out. And then obviously we're gonna do Vajra Yogini at the top of the, the top of the tr- Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll do however you want. We'll just, we'll rock it out. And, you know, if we do two or three more, we do four more. Whatever. I'm, you know, I'm good for it. So, know, whatever mate, you need. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, before you go, Jen, would you like to let everybody know where they can get all of you, please? Sure. So, I was just on an episode. Um, oh, I can't even speak. I was just on a, a episode with Headless Giant. And oh, so yeah. And- it was actually like, I was very, it was a very different conversation for me. I really pushed outside of my normal boundaries in terms of like what I talked about in terms of Tantra. So we talked more about like the uses of plants, how we can use plants to understand um, observations in the world, just like Bhuvaneshwari teaches us to assign ritual 
meaning to actions. That's kind of what I talked about, like how plants can be used to have multiple levels of meaning in the world. Like yeah. we can observe plants, we can taste plants. So that's really what it was about. So, and then I'm also at Twitter at Wukong Reborn, W-U-K-O-N-G Reborn. And um, listen to all of our other ones. Um, my favorite so far has been the Kurakula one. I think it was just like an incredible episode. I'm oh, so proud of and I'm so grateful to you for letting me like just kind of go on for an hour and 30 minutes. Like it was pretty amazing. And so that, yeah, that's where I'm at. Mate, you are uh, a yeah, legend. Um, thank you very much. And I cannot wait to speak to you again. But um, I'll stop recording now, mate, but don't go anywhere, please. Sounds good. Thank nice you, one. General. Your chain and mace your eyes Feels good, it takes